0: So, one thing that I would definitely suggest doing in a fantasy context is, especially if you're um, talking about a group which is in any way marginalized, um, look at look at the kind of fantasy that that group makes about itself um as an inspiration for your fantasy. Um, because it, first of all, it's going to be interesting. Um, and second of all, uh, that's going to allow you to represent that group in like an interesting um and rich and deep way without uh, tripping over harmful tropes that are actually going to get you in the habit of saying or doing things which might end up hurting people in the real world.
1: Welcome to D&D Dads, an advice show where two dads answer your role-playing questions.
2: I'm your dad, Brennan Taylor, and I'm overloaded with Zoom games right now.
1: And I'm your dad, J.R. Blackwell, and I've already forgotten that I'm muted. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Too many Zoom games. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm literally playing more games than I was before COVID started.
1: <laughs> oh no!
2: <laughs> oh, to I'm, I'm like, well, I've got like one evening a week where I'm not doing something. <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're a popular guy.
2: I know. I know. <laughs>
1: So, what's your big dad energy this week?
2: Well, this week I sat down with my son who has moved out of my house and helped him do a budget so that he could figure out how much money he had to spend. It was so a very, uh, it was a very dad moment. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that's pretty classic dad. Uh, I wish someone had done that with me. <laughs> <laughs>
2: He's that smart enough be not to get humble. credit cards, which I never was. So,
1: yeah, oh, smart, smart guy, smart guy.
2: <laughs> What's your big dad energy?
1: So my big dad energy this week is that uh, my wife and I are we're always looking forward to bedtime because that's when we can like get stuff done and like have free time. And so like we have a very structured bedtime for our three-year-old. And then when she goes to sleep, my wife and I just lay around and look at pictures of her. Uh, (laughs) Just so we're, because we're so crazy about her. (laughs) It's like, go to bed, go to bed,
0: go to bed. You're so cute.
2: They're definitely cuter when they're asleep. Yeah. That, oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I, under, I totally get it. Uh, when my kids were little, we were try we tried to make sure that they had a steady steady bedtime too. It's it's yeah. very important for your sanity. Mm-hmm. It is. <laughs> All right, our guest this week is James Mendez-Hodes, a Filipino-American writer, game designer, cultural consultant, and martial artist from the New York area. His what's many good. design uh, What's that? Uh, I just said what's good. What's, uh, up? what's good? <laughs> <laughs> Your many design credits include the upcoming Avatar game, that would be The Last Airbender and Legend of Korra, not the Blue Alien movie, uh, Sentinel Comics RPG, and Scion and your cultural consulting work includes uh Magic the Gathering and Jackbox Party Pack which i did not
0: know yeah yeah Heck that yeah. was a that was a surprise last year um, <laughs> that's yeah, a big so, one yeah yeah i was uh i worked on Jackbox Party Pack 7 it was a it was a great experience jackbox was was awesome about it um so just you know if you've ever played Jackbox Party Pack 7 just imagine what you already did but like way more offensive and that's what i prevented from happening <laughs> thank you for your service so, uh, yeah. you're welcome so uh, to some of you you're welcome and to others of you i'm sorry <laughs> right
1: <laughs> so um james what's your big dad energy for this week
0: uh i got a stick that i really like for martial arts i got a i got a quarter staff There's nothing interesting about it. Like, it's just, like, a stick. It's six feet long. Uh It's really nice. It's made of Appalachian hickory. And when I try to practice with it inside my tiny apartment because of COVID, um, every time it, like, vaguely nudges anything else, it leaves a dent. (laughs) Like, I couldn't think of what to ask my sister for 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 Christmas. So I was just like, uh, can you get me a stick? But, like, a really nice stick? (laughs) So that Great. made me pretty happy in, in, That's... in more serious answers. Um, uh, so I get, uh, I get a bunch of, uh, cultural consulting requests from people I don't know, uh, every week and I'm grateful for all of them. And the, the most interesting one that I've gotten recently was from a high school kid who wanted to not just not ask me for free help, but hire me to, uh, help her with, like the fantasy fiction that she writes basically for fun. Like she's not even trying to get published or anything. She just like does it for fun. Um, And uh, she like of her own accord sought out a cultural consultant on the internet, just like Googled me or something and uh, uh, hired me to uh, work on her stuff. So I was both surprised and excited about that. Um, So that's pretty cool. That is cool. That's amazing. That
1: is cool. Yeah,
0: I'm. Um, I'm really glad that cultural consulting is now becoming like enough of a thing uh, in in people's workflow and people's understanding of like what it means to create fiction, like that kind of thing. Um, that this could happen at all, because like, yeah, when I was a kid, I did not, I could not have predicted that I would have a job telling people, essentially telling people they're racist for a living. And I just (laughs) think that's that's such a beautiful world. (laughs) Well,
2: you've done some uh, consulting on uh, topics that relate to our question for this week as well. Yes. Yeah, Um, we're going to
1: ask you to do some cultural consulting.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So uh, Sandy asks, have you covered historical accuracy and when to care and when not to? That is a great
0: question. Uh, yeah, yeah. So this is a this is a question that I uh, end up answering a lot, and like often in different ways, uh, going from game to game. Um, huh, when to care about historical accuracy? Um, so uh, I guess the first thing that I would want to say in response to that is uh, uh, that there are there are parallel questions about historical accuracy and historical respect. Hmm. Um, and where I think that a lot of these, uh, where I think that a lot of these questions become like interesting, where I think like the main conflict is, um, uh, uh, is where historical accuracy and respect, um, uh, where they intersect with systems and structures of power. Um, so, for example, uh, l- let's look at a commonly misrepresented group: uh, the Catholic yeah. Church. Um, okay yeah, so uh, I grew up Roman Catholic, and uh, people love misrepresenting the Catholic Church. It is a popular subject for fiction. Um, there's all kinds of games, video games, RPGs, uh, uh, television shows, that kind of thing, um which are just constantly misrepresenting the Catholic Church, what Catholic doctrine is like, um what it actually means to be a Catholic, all types of things like that. Um, and under a lot of circumstances, um, Getting getting something wrong in the present or in the past about the Catholic Church, um, if, if you get something wrong about the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church is going to be fine. Um, they have a whole state, right? They got a whole Vatican. They're a whole mm-hmm. country. Um, and they have worldwide reach and lots of money and support. And, uh, you know, uh, in spite of the occasional lament about how there's fewer churches nowadays than there used to be or how nobody wants to be a priest... Um, there's a a pretty significant body of positivity uh, in culture around the Catholic Church. So getting the Catholic Church wrong um, usually isn't a problem for the Catholic Church. They don't and can't keep track of all of the games and books and TV shows and so forth that misrepresent them. Um, Where I might be concerned about people getting the Catholic Church wrong um, is when uh, hating on Catholicism becomes an excuse to hate on people uh, who are marginalized in some way. Um, so mm. if you're hating on the Catholic Church um, because uh, I don't know you're a disgruntled ex-Catholic writer, as a disgruntled ex-Catholic writer, I you know I support that. You know Flannery O'Connor, that's cool. Um, <laughs> if you're hating on the Catholic Church as a way to um, as a way to low-key complain about, for example, immigrants um, that's, I think, a a more serious problem. Um, if you're, if your anti-Catholic thing turns out to be, like, not a problem with, like, the structures of power that support the Catholic Church, um, and the structures of power that allow the Catholic Church, in a lot of historical context, um, to, uh, throw its weight around and dominate other people and oppress other religions, um, then I'm more cool with that than if you're, Criticizing the Catholic Church because you actually want to criticize Mexican people who live in America, um, right. and uh, when you look at something that's critical of Catholicism, uh, very often you're not sure which of those things it's going to be until uh, you get deeper into that. So, um, so I think that when it comes to historical accuracy and historical respect, uh, the question that we need to be asking ourselves is, um, uh, who? who is affected by the thing that we're making, um, in particular, who is affected by the thing that we're making, who is vulnerable to the thing that we're making. Mm. Um, so, uh, let's look at a, let's look at a different example. Let's look at a religion which doesn't have the, you know, uh, millions upon millions of followers and the worldwide reach and the breadth of representation that the Catholic church does. Um, uh, for example, uh, voodoo, um, so right. voodoo is a religion coming out of Haiti um, and uh, also out of the, uh, the southern United States, uh, which uh, combines uh, Afro-Atlantic influences coming primarily from the, uh, the Dahomey region of West Africa um, with various other West African influences and also with some Catholic influences. Um, not a lot of people practice voodoo. And most human beings will go their entire life without ever running into someone who practices voodoo. The same is not prob- is probably not true for like running into a Catholic person or seeing media representations of Catholics. So um, if you get voodoo wrong, um, if you misrepresent voodoo in your work, um, because voodoo does not have that wealth of uh, privilege and uh, representation and also literal wealth, um, if you get that wrong, um that might be one hundred percent of the representations of voodoo that someone interacts with that year. Um, so uh, what you're creating stands to um stands to affect the lives of people who practice a marginalized religion um in a much more real and much more intense way. Um, so the stakes are really, really different. right. Um, this seems to be like a Sort of a punching up versus punching down kind of distinction. It is exactly that kind of distinction. Um, yeah. so when you're so when you're looking at a historical situation, um, when you're looking at an instance of historical accuracy, um, you should definitely be asking yourself, okay, so the group that I'm representing, um, what kinds of struggles are they facing today? And what kinds of what kinds of misrepresentation? What kind, what kind of damage does inaccuracy do to these people today? So um, the worst way to be inaccurate about someone, right, um, is if you're inaccurate about them in a way that reinforces some negative stereotype that a group still struggles with in the modern day. Um, uh, I'm uh, uh, my, my father was Jewish. Um, I wasn't raised practicing, but um, I still feel close to the culture, having grown up in New York City. Um, and I'm just always amazed by the fact that, uh, people's like anti-Semitism has changed so little over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, and like QAnon and, uh, the whole like blood libel, uh, issue and, um, the, the twisting of like the struggle against human trafficking to be about this like imaginary secret cabal of Jewish elites who are like eating Christian babies or whatever. it, it's the same thing that Jews have been dealing with for centuries, and I'm just like, you know, in, in game design, we're always talking about innovation. Why does nobody ever want to innovate in conspiracy theory? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like yeah, they're they, LARPing, right? Like the like, same ones. <laughs> right? Yeah, why well, would you just want to play like the same LARP over and over for hundreds of years? <laughs> um, James, I
1: had a, I had a question uh, for you about historical accuracy in games because. A lot of the games I play, and I think a lot of the games that are out there, um or particularly very popular games are are fantasy games um, that draw on um, draw on elements of history, but don't necessarily aren't necessarily taking place um, in a historical setting. So there's like a lot of fantasy out there. I see you consulted for um, Magic the Gathering. Um, so when we're talking about historical accuracy, so if you have like a fantasy setting, it's set in a medieval era, clearly drawing on on um, influences from culture and on history, but not actually set specifically in like you know here's France, um, you know in 1482. Uh, what what kind of attention do you need to pay to historical accuracy um is there is there still like if you're drawing from a certain um time uh should is there is there something that you should keep in mind there or does a fantasy setting say okay maybe you don't need to pay attention to it all what's your what's your opinion on that
0: So the thing that I'm most concerned about in a fantasy Mm -hmm. setting is it's really that same priority. It's, um, are the, is your fantasy, are the, are the touchstones that are involved in fantasy, um, uh, related to, uh, the identities and the issues facing real people today? Um, and, and in almost all cases, the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. Um, people... People say, like, oh, this is fantasy, this is all made up, it has nothing to do with reality, and then you look closely at it, and then it turns out that it's full of influences from the real world. The clothing that right. people wear, the the structures that they build, the architecture styles that they have, um, the names that you give things, the kinds of weapons they wield, all of these things are related to things in the real world. And uh, very often people who adamantly uh, assert that um, what they've made up is fantasy um, if you actually look at what they make, it, it has all kinds of things to do with the real world. So when you have real world signifiers um, in a fantasy context, uh, people notice um, the, the word, if you look at say Legend of the Five Rings, um, I've done a little bit of work for Legend of the Five Rings, um, both as a writer and as a cultural consultant. And even if the word Japan never appeared in L5R anywhere, people would know that it had Japanese influences. Um, similarly, uh, if you look at like Game of Thrones, um, even though it's a fantasy setting that George RR Martin supposedly created whole cloth, the fact that it was influenced by the Wars of the Roses and by real world European countries, um, you can't watch, you can't experience Game of Thrones without knowing that there were those influences. So humans are smart. We make connections between things. We draw connections between things automatically using, you know, our pattern seeking brains. So, um, you have to be aware of those, you have to be aware of those pattern. Um, and in particular, the things that I'm most concerned about are places where someone wants to perpetuate some kind of hateful idea and they're trying to scrub it of apparent context by using fantasy as, um, as a sort of disguise. So those are the things that I'm most concerned about but for most people like in the situation that you're in where they're playing a fantasy game that's not something that they're um that's not something that they're necessarily uh, i'm not super worried about your particular home game um perpetuating mm-hmm. those racist ideas um or otherwise other kinds of offensive ideas um so in that context um something that we can use fantasy to train ourselves to do um is to um is to start to scrutinize um, how, uh, how we see the people who our touchstones represent. Um, and uh, fantasy is a really good opportunity to explore how can we see someone, um, how can we see fantasy about a certain group um, as people from that group would see it? Um, Going back to the example of Legend of the Five Rings or of the the genre in general of um, East Asian fantasy that we see very often in Western role-playing games. Um, uh, There's an idea called Orientalism, uh, which was originally coined by Edward Said uh, in the book Orientalism uh, to talk about the way that Western art and material culture um, viewed originally the Middle East. where there's a there's a particular pattern of uh, the way that the West creates fantasies about Asia um, that perpetuates certain harmful ideas that end up affecting people in the real world. Um, and uh, it's not that people in Asia don't make fantasy about themselves. Of course they do. But the tropes that are present in fantasy that Chinese people make about China, for example, are different than the tropes that we tend to see in fantasy that Europeans uh, create about China. Um, so one thing that I would definitely suggest doing in a fantasy context is, especially if you're um, talking about a group which is in any way marginalized, um, look, at, look at the kind of fantasy that that group makes about itself um, as an inspiration for your fantasy. Um, because it, first of all, it's gonna be interesting. Um, and second of all, uh, that's going to allow you to represent that group in like an interesting, um, and rich and deep way without, uh, tripping over harmful tropes that are actually going to get you in the habit of saying or doing things which might end up hurting people in the real world. Um, and then this kind of segues into the, uh, the next thing about is the next Important thing about historical accuracy, uh, which is that uh, nerding out about history is fun so okay. um so one of the reasons why I make games that have um elements of historical accuracy in them is that um I think they're interesting, and like for the same reason that I'll read books with interesting settings or um you know, I'll get really into TV shows or whatever, I'll get into reading about historical settings and uh, about historical groups and periods that I didn't know about, because i am I really like that feeling of discovery. Um, like that's that's joyful for me. So when I bring those into games, um, I'm doing that like out of a sense of joy. And uh, I guess the the positive effect that um that has at the table um is that i can um I can delight people. I can Um, if I learn something interesting about a group that doesn't often appear in Western media or in Western fantasy, um, and I can, and I create something that's based on them, um, then that's bringing something that's exciting and new to people. And for reasons which are completely, completely apart from like trying to get things right or trying to be sensitive, um, I can show people, um, new angles on fantasy and new angles on fiction um, based on these historical inspirations, and cool. especially in nerd culture, like uh, people are already so familiar with so many um, with so many fantasy sources and so many kinds of fiction. Um, very often, looking at reality will be more surprising and uh, more unexpected for a lot of the people that I tend to play games with, um, and f- partly like the same way that I'm playing. I'm getting interested in history for that joy of discovery. Um, I'm sharing it with people so that I can see the joy of discovery in their reactions to what I'm doing. Um, and I think over, over long periods of time, um, I think that I get to see as those people get more interested in historical gaming and historical fiction, and learning about history, um, just from their own perspective. And now we have a thing that we can do together. And, you know, that's as exciting for me as like introducing someone to a sport that I like that they uh, they weren't into before. Um, so yeah, like there's, there is an element of just like unadulterated joy for me. And I think that's what brought me to these topics long before I got interested in cultural consulting um, as a way to like help people. Um, and like at the end, even if cultural consulting weren't on the table, even if I weren't doing these things because I'm uh, worried about how uh, fantasy and RPGs affect people's real world lives, um, I'd still be trying to do historical stuff because it's just fun and I'm playing for that delight. Awesome. That's
2: Thanks brilliant. for your answer. Yeah, you, you that was very thorough. I appreciate Thanks.
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> I just love the idea of leading with delight. You know, yeah, absolutely, brilliant. yeah,
0: so when I started out doing historical uh, historical type gaming or like culturally informed gaming, whatever you want to call it, um, and I was doing it for, again, leading with delight. Um, I made lots of mistakes, and there was lots of offensive stuff that I did when I started out in gaming, um that I ended up having to unlearn or having to iterate on. Um, and I guess, like, Where that delight really helped me out emotionally was that um, when someone tells me I'm wrong, there's a physical feeling. There's a physical sensation that I I feel like right behind my eyes or just like kind of creeping over my scalp. Um, You know, I can feel a blush. I can feel warmth rising into my face. And, you know, my my hands and my fingers tingling when someone tells me I'm wrong, or especially when someone tells me that something I said or did uh, was, uh, like, offensive or harmful to somebody else. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it goes back to that, that Catholic guilt, right? <laughs> um, but if, when I feel that, um, if I can sort of hold on to, if I can hold on to that delight and that positivity that brought me into the topic, um, very often... Um, that helps me get through those feelings of discomfort, set aside my own ego, set aside my own defensiveness, and listen to the person who's talking to me. Um, and if I if I hold on to that delight, even as I'm going over the ways in which I'm wrong and I need to change things, then it helps me through a vulnerable moment and helps me get to a place where I can be better to other people and I can also feel better about myself.
1: Nice. Yeah. That's great. That's some good dad advice right you there. Right.
0: <laughs> Very glad.
1: <laughs> so speaking of d- delight, I think, I think it's about time for us to move to our recommendations. Um, this is where we recommend something. My recommendation for this week is uh, the author T. Kingfisher, also known as Ursula Vernon, and uh, just all, all of her books. Uh, She writes fantasy for children and adults, and it's just fantastic. Her humor, her horror, her romance, her characters, they're all both refreshing and familiar. So her stuff can be read at redwombatstudio.com. And if you're not ready to invest in a book just yet, uh, Google LeVar Burton reads The Jackalope Wives, and you'll get... um, a short story intro into her fantastic fiction and it's read by LeVar Burton. So really you just can't lose.
2: Yeah. That's <laughs> <Don't> amazing. You...
0: <laughs> I did not know that, uh, I did not know that T. King Fisher was Ursula Vernon. Uh, the only thing of hers I know is, uh, the, the Wombat comic Digger. Digger yeah. Yes, Digger. Digger. Comic. Yeah. Very that's cool.
1: a wonderful comic. And, and, uh, she writes a lot of great children's books, but adults books too. And I think if you're, um, you're a fantasy person that likes fantasy. They're, they're so good. They're so good. They're that book, you know, like when the author, you, you love, you find out, you has a new book, you, you, you scramble to the nearest uh, place yeah. to buy books. And you're like, get out of my way, everyone. Clear my calendar.
0: <laughs> I don't care how much the hardcover costs. I need it yesterday.
1: <laughs> I have to read a book tonight. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Great.
2: Do you have a recommendation for this week, Brennan? I do. Um, I'm recommending the crossroads at midnight by Abby Howard. Uh, it's a collection of five spooky comic stories from uh, an author and an artist that has created some of the creepiest horror stories I've ever read. Ooh. Uh, she's uh, got a, um, a regular, well, uh, any irregular web comic, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, does a lot of these uh, short, short horror comics as well. And, um, they're, they're definitely something I would uh, recommend. You can get them at... The Crossroads at Midnight is available at bookstores right now.
1: Nice. James, do you have a recommendation?
0: Um, yeah. Yeah, I am so excited about the new Ravenloft setting book that's coming out for yes. Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. Yeah. Um, the, the, the all-star team working on this game... Of writers, designers, artists, every is is just stellar, and it's so easy for me to get grumpy about or bored with D and D, but I could not be more excited about um, the about the direction that this Ravenloft book is going. Um, and then, uh, you know, one other thing. Um, I'm late to the party, but I'm finally playing these dating sims, uh, Monster Prom and Monster Camp. Mm -hmm. And I just, I love them. They just do such a great job of walking the line between, um, like respecting all kinds of diverse, uh, identities and also just being like horrible people at the same time, you know, like, and, and the fact that like, um, they're so affirming and then also so full of genocide and cocaine. You know, it just really means a lot to me as a cultural consultant that there's stuff like this out there. (laughs) That's great.
2: Great. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was a joy. You've been listening to D&D Dads, a role-playing game advice show for everyone at the table, the parlor, or the dungeon. I've been your dad, Brennan Taylor. And I've been your dad,
1: J.R. Blackwell. Send your questions to askyourdads at gmail.com for advice about playing, running, or writing a role-playing game.
2: Because if we don't know the answer,
1: we know someone who does. Send that email you've been putting off. You know the one.
0: Hush now, darling, dry your eye. It's not forever, goodbye. There's no reason to be sad. Come join us next time here on D&D Dads. D&D
1: Dads is hosted by Brennan Taylor and J.R. Blackwell and produced by Seamus Ronan. Original theme music was written and performed by Kate Nix. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at d and Dads. Rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com backslash askyourdads. Send us your questions at askyourdads at gmail.com.